0: Hey, I'm Portia Sabin. Support for The Future of What comes from True West, presenting The Psychedelic Furs and The Church on Wednesday, September 2nd, Doors at 7, all ages. One of the most influential bands of the last 30 years and one of my all-time favorites, The Psychedelic Furs are known for their hits Love My Way, Pretty in Pink, and Heaven. Learn more about The Psychedelic Furs and The Church show Wednesday, September 2nd by going to cascadetickets.com. I'm Portia Sabin, and this is The Future of What. Every day, I get demos of songs in my email inbox, like this one called Secret Stories. Red Cabin and I really liked it. So what happens next? The internet was supposed to change the world by providing a level playing field for all musicians. Now anyone can get their music out there without having to be on a record label. However, there are still gatekeepers that a band must navigate at multiple places in their career. If they want to play a show at a venue, they must submit their music to a promoter and get approved in order to play. If they want to get a booking agent to help them with planning their tours, they have to submit music to an agent. And of course, if they want to get signed to a record label, the label has to hear their music and like it. For gatekeepers, the internet's main result has been that now we get hundreds of MP3s and streams, like the one I got from Red Cabin, instead of hundreds of CDs. On today's episode, we talk to gatekeepers about the songs that made them open their gates, what made them fall in love with a song, and thus help the band get to the next level. It's all coming up on The Future of What.
1: Story says I feel after we just have to pay attention to the and we'll be
0: happy Welcome to our first gatekeepers roundtable. Today we have with us Ken Chepakoid from Dirtnap Records and Green Noise, the record store. Hi, Ken.
2: Hi, Parsha. Thanks for having me.
0: We also have Theo Craig, who is a freelance club promoter. Welcome to The Future of What.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, Portia.
0: And we have legendary AR guy, Slim Moon. Hello. So let's start with you, Slim. Why don't you tell us about a song that you heard that really made you fall in love with the artist?
4: Well, I was asked to go on this tour that was a bunch of Northwest solo artists. And it was me and Sean Krogan and... Tammy Watson from Kill Sybil, Sean was from Cracker Bash, and the lead singer of Hammerbox, Carrie Ockree, and this guy, Elliot Smith, from Heatmiser. And um, I knew everybody except for Elliot. And the first night of the tour was at the Crocodile in Seattle. And I didn't watch the first guy play his set because I was chilling with Seattle friends. And then Sean started his set, and I was like, oh, i got to go in and see Sean. Before Sean played any songs, he said, everybody who just didn't watch Elliot Smith, you really missed out on something. So the next night, because I figured, you know, Sean, yeah, Sean knew what he was talking about. The next night I went, and we were played at the bottom of the hill in San Francisco, and I made a point to listen to Elliot's set, and I was completely blown away. And then I went out to the tour van, and I put his CD in the CD player, and I did, and I, I mean, after my set... And then I just listened to his CD over and over and over again instead of watching other people. The song that really stood out for me, I mean, his stuff was really great, but the song that really stood out was a song called Last Call. One of the neat things that stood out for me was that it had a tuning change in the middle of the song.
0: So we're going to hear that song right now. So this is Last Call by Elliot Smith.
5: Last call, he was sick of it all, asleep at home told you all and goodbye Care what you say, you're a jay. of you sound, sick of you coming around. of my makers named like I was.
3: Heard a room as quiet as one that Elliot was playing in. Just everyone would be in the silence with rapt attention. It was amazing. You could hear whispers and coughs and and Elliott breathing between songs.
0: Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah. On that same tour, when we got to L.A., we played two shows: one in a bar and one at Jabberjaw, which was a all-ages space in a storefront, and The power went out in Jabberjah and nobody knew what to do, but Elliot just went out back into this tiny little courtyard that they never used and just played completely acoustic. And all these all-ages, super young punk kids just surrounded him, you know, two feet away, and it was just pin-drop silent. All you could hear was him playing. It was just a magical show.
0: I think one of the most amazing things about that song and about a lot of Elliot songs is that it's actually a waltz, which is not something that you think of when you think of alternative rock, for the most part. You know, it's it's that tempo that is just, it's got like a drag to it that's really compelling.
3: Completely. Totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did, uh, like, a good waltz.
0: Yeah, he did a good waltz.
3: I, I go to the same coffee shop as Sean Krogan, and we, we talk about music often. We talk about art, and sometimes we talk about some of the big things for the past we don't talk specifically about Elliot. they were close friends and that's just you know something that i i think maybe is a little bit hard for him to talk about but he did talk about this same tour this being a, a thing where all these different artists front people from groups went out together on kind of this, this circuit tour and the idea being that different people would headline different nights and he said by the end of it It was just clear Elliot was the headliner.
0: Did it strike you like that, Slim? Did you feel when you started watching him and hearing that album that it was just obvious that he had it, whatever it is?
4: Yeah, he had that thing. My favorite types of bands, my favorite musicians, are people who can completely capture and control the room with just their own instrument and their own voice without a drummer or a machine or... A band but just their one instrument and their voice and although we were all solo artists he was the only one who really had that command to be able to to, a true solo artist who could really have everybody riveted with just his voice and his his single instrument
0: i know i felt that way when i saw colin malloy play at the upstairs of a crappy bar in portland in 2001 or something and he was just playing it was just himself with an acoustic guitar and we are we were at a rock and swap ken were you there at that
2: yeah, I was. Yeah, and I thought like, you were. That's right. I think that's the last time I saw you, Slim. <laughs> that was a long I think time that ago. that might be right, yeah.
0: And I went, run. I saw, watched one song, and I came running downstairs, and I said, Slim, you've got to go see this guy. And Slim said, I'm talking to somebody. And I was mm. like, no, you got to stop talking and get upstairs and see this guy before he's done. But yeah, it's it's funny when you see somebody who has that that talent. It's like, it's just, it's like glowing like a big neon sign, I think.
4: Yeah. Like Meryl Garbus from Toon Yards, mm-hmm. you know, for example. Yeah.
0: So that was a little bit of a different situation for you, Slim, because it's not like you got that demo in the mail. It's not like you were being solicited to put that out.
4: That's right. Yeah, I was not.
0: So how did you approach Elliot about working with him?
4: Well, like happened quite often back in the early days of Kill Rockstars, I actually thought my label was too small and I thought he was too awesome. So the first thing I did was try to help him get a deal with a with a different record label, and but then that record label didn't show any interest, and in the course of me trying to help him out, we had become friends, and I guess he felt like he could trust me, and so then we ended up working together.
0: Wow. Did you have, and, and that's something I've heard you say, that in the beginning, a lot of people didn't take Elliot seriously.
4: Oh, yeah. You know, at that time, it's kind of hard to remember historically, but at that time, all of the notable solo artists in the indie rock genre were not... Coming out under their own names, you know, they had they instead came out as Smog or Palace or Centrado, and so it was it was just considered incredibly uncool to have just an acoustic guitar and also just come out with the art, name of the artist to be your first and last name. It was sort of seen as the kiss of death. It was kind of brave of Elliot to do that, and the result was that when we sent it out to the usual Kill Rock Stars press list to the people who usually wrote about the you know, loud, noisy indie rock and punk bands that we usually put out, they just generally ignored it. You know, they'd put on the first song, hear an acoustic guitar, see that the guy was named Elliot Smith, and they'd think James Taylor, and then they would not listen to the rest of it, and very few people reviewed that first record.
0: I know that that is true, because I lived through that exact same thing, because in the early 90s, I lived in London, and I used to go out to music every night, like five nights a week at least, and I remember one night, there was a band called The Family Cat playing, and I really wanted to see them, but the opener on that show was somebody named PJ Harvey, and I thought I'm not going to go and see some singer songwriter with a guitar. And yeah. I am, I mean, eternally <laughs> yeah. furious at myself. <laughs> I cannot believe, I cannot believe I didn't go to that show. It's just so dumb. So, anybody else want to talk about that song or Elliot before we move on to the next one?
2: I like the song. I've I've never been that incredibly familiar with him. Never saw him live or anything like that. Yeah, it sounded great.
3: Yeah, he was one uh, of one of my favorite artist. I, I discovered him a, a little bit later <laughs> after he'd put out a few albums and he was on tour with Quasi. I made a, a trip up from Seattle to Olympia because I had a, a friend who was working security that night and he said that you record shows. I recorded, I was a concert taper at the time uh, recording all kinds of things that were happening in my neck of the woods. And this person who was really an acquaintance over the internet said, Hey, if if you wanna record this show, there's this excellent artist, Elliot Smith, coming in. I can get you an audience with them and we can see if we can get approval for a recording of that. I'll hook you up. Just come on up to Bellingham. And I did and I I didn't get approval to record off the board, which is what I would have preferred because I had really bad mics. So I out there in the world now is a recording of that show with my left nostril which kind of whistles. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I notice it now and I, I try not to breathe through it when I'm near a microphone, but oh uh, you gosh. can kind of hear it just whistling throughout the yeah. uh, recording. It's terrible. That's amazing. But it was an amazing show.
0: Wow.
4: At the mention of Quasi, I'd love to tell a little story about Quasi. If, you, if you're talking about gatekeeping and about how first impressions can go one way or the other, you know, Elliot was in this ba- was in a band called Miser and so I had started working with him, but Heatmiser was still playing shows. And I went to a Miser show, and they had a new fill-in temporary bass player named San Coombs. And he handed me a uh, tape, and he said, "This is my band Quasi. We'd love to be on Kill Rock Stars." But he had a mustache, like one of those caterpillar rocker <laughs> dude mustaches, <laughs> and I was like, so appalled. <laughs> Because I didn't realize it was ironic. I thought it was real. I mean, I thought it was like, and actually those kind of mustaches have actually become much more common since those days. And so I I just, his cassette just sat on my table until the record came out on Up, and I loved it. And it's one of my favorite records to ever come out from any Pacific Northwest band. And I just feel like such a dummy, just like you and the P.J. Harvey story, I feel like such a dummy (laughs) that I let a mustache keep me from checking
2: out that record.
0: (laughs) Have you, any of you guys ever had a, a situation like that where you didn't check something out because of some first impression?
2: Oh, yeah. I can, I can think of so many, so many different examples. A lot of, you know, it seems like a lot of the times what, you know, gets me to listen to a demo or, you know, in this case, not listen to a demo seems pretty arbitrary. <laughs> you know, not liking the name, not liking the cover art, you know, not liking the other bands who you see the, that they're playing on bills with, that sort of thing. Yeah, because of that it can actually be kind of kind of random and kind of arbitrary what actually gets listened to.
3: It might even just be how they approach you out in the real world. I I, I feel like uh, we've probably all experienced it where you're having maybe an intimate conversation or not so intimate conversation, but catching up with friends and have someone show up with laser focus and they really want you to know that they're doing a the thing that you need to hear and it can just uh, rub you the wrong way. And, and you can miss out on, on great things as a result.
0: Sometimes though you don't miss out because I feel like since I've been running Kill Rockstars, I've gotten several demos, which are things like five dudes in really tight leather pants and all the songs are about like bitches and hoes and you know women on their knees on the cover and stuff. And I'm like, are you guys familiar with this record label? Like, did you just send this <laughs> to everybody in the world? You know, I mean, I, when when people don't do their research, it really bothers me. I feel like they deserve to go go straight in the trash. If they're not uh, careful about what they.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's usually pretty obvious, pretty quick, too. I mean, you know, in, in those cases, I kind of feel like you don't even really have to listen to the to the demo to really, you know, see that the band do, isn't really, you know, doing their homework and isn't really putting in the effort to make sure that that they're, you know, an appropriate fit. But it seems like those bands uh, weed themselves out pretty quickly in my experience.
0: Guys, let's pause for a moment for a station break. I'm Portia Sabin and this is The Future of What. Stay with us. We're back on The Future of What with Ken, Slim, and Theo in our Gatekeepers Roundtable. So, Ken, how long have you been running Dirtnap Records?
2: Going on 16 years uh, at the end of the year. Yikes. <laughs> long time. <laughs>
0: That's a long
2: time.
0: So tell us about this song that we're going to hear next. Tell us, sort of set us up, how, how did you get a hold of the song? Did the band contact you or what?
2: Well, I first heard of the band when I read a review of their first self-released limited to 300 LP in uh, Maximum Rock and Roll. This is probably like five or six years ago, maybe seven. I don't remember. Anyways, uh, the review made it seem like it would be something right up my alley. So I got, a, I got a hold of the band you know, via the Internet and asked to buy a few copies of the LP to sell at my store because I figured it would be something that would kind of fit in with, with our niche. And uh, I think they sent me five copies. I sold them right away. Wrote back to the band, asked them to send me a dozen copies, sold those right away. And then when I when I went back to ask for more copies, you know, they said they were running pretty low since they had only pressed 300 of them. So I just said, you know, go ahead and just send me all of them that you have left and, you know, I'm, I'm sure I can sell them. Because for about six months there, when I started stocking the record, I was basically playing it for every single person in Portland who wandered into the shop. And more <laughs> often than not, the people would wind up buying it. Wow. Sold a lot of copies that way. And in fact, quite a few records... Bands that wind up on Dirt Nap kind of start out that way. Wow! So you did some research. Yeah, I did. To find I, them. did I did my own version of of market research. Wow! So but tell I, us
0: the name of the band and the song that we're going to hear.
2: The name of the band is The White Wires from Ottawa, and the song is called Up Late. <laughs>
0: can share a love of punk pop so i of course think that's awesome
2: (laughs) love it me too and you know one thing i wanted to kind of say about that song as well is that it it was uh wound up being a pretty you know fruitful association with that band just in that at that time ottawa was having a really you know an explosion of you know just really burgeoning young indie you know garage punk whatever you want to call it scene seemed to be really springing up around there and uh, we kind of were able to, you know, insinuate ourselves with that and that, that after, you know, becoming friends with and, and signing up the White Wires to our label, we signed up a couple more bands from that immediate scene. And uh, we ran across a guy who does all the mastering for most of those bands, who now does a lot of the mastering for all the Dirt Nap bands. And we got turned on to a really great festival uh, called Ottawa Explosion that's put on by people in that, that crowd of folks or that crowd of bands. And, you know, we go out to that every year, and I've actually signed up bands from seeing them at the, at the Ottawa Fest. So yeah, it's kind of, in a lot of ways, kind of come full circle. You know, it, they were kind of, they had told me before that they were influenced by previous generations of, like, Dirt Nap Records bands, and now that's kind of come around, and, and they've influenced us as well, as, in that it's kind of changed the course of the label a little bit, and sort of given us, like, kind of changed the geographic focus a little. I always say that for some weird reason, we sign up a lot of bands from Texas and a lot of bands from Canada. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Hardly any bands from Portland.
0: That is funny, because I remember there was a band called the Exploding Hearts on your label. Were they from California?
2: Oh, no, they were, they were a Portland band. Yeah, I thought yeah, they were a Portland yeah.
0: band. That band was amazing. That was one of my all-time favorite.
2: Yeah, I always say that the Exploding Hearts kind of like closed a door on one era of the label and opened the door on, on another. Because back when we were, you know, in the first few years of the label, we were mostly doing Pacific Northwest bands, you know, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, B.C., Whereas it seemed like the exploding hearts were kind of the last in the like long line of local bands we signed. And then shortly after all that stuff happened, we kind of that's kinda of when we started signing up Texas bands. And we we kind of, you know, sort of abandoned the the kind of geographical focus that the label used to have. And, you know, instead of consider you know, me considering it a, a regional thing, I started thinking of it as, you know, kind of a national thing or an international thing. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I'm I mean, I'm thinking about pop punk on a national scale i feel like it's such a popular genre but it almost got a little bit co-opted after green day because i feel like there was like 12 seconds after green day where there it looked like there could be you know major label on the radio pop punk bands and then instead it just all went to that like warp tour style
4: or like stacy's mama's got it going on right i actually like that song
0: It's a good song. My wife loves that. Yeah, it's a good song. I mean, those bands are not bad bands. They're good bands. It's just I feel like it's a little different. And maybe I'm wrong. I mean, do you disagree?
2: Well, no, not at all. First of all, though, I don't really consider Dirt Nap a pop punk label. I don't think we're really that much of a genre label. Mm -hmm. Our Our releases tend to have a kind of a unifying aesthetic, but I'm not really sure what to call it. You know, I wouldn't necessarily call it pop punk or like garage rock or power pop, you know, or whatever, although we've been tagged with all three of those and other genres i kind of think of it as you know it's sort of hard to articulate exactly what the aesthetic is but i know it when i hear it (laughs) yeah and it's kind of cool it just in the last you know especially in the last four or five years i'm actually starting to see a lot of reviews of bands who aren't on our label you know in the press who call you know getting referred to as like dirt nap style punk which is pretty gratifying
0: yeah that's very gratifying I feel like our label... I mean, that's the thing about labels is they're always a little bit guided by the taste of the owner. I mean, obviously, because we're the ones who choose the band. But it is funny because I think our label used to have a real identity when Slim was running it in the beginning. You know, it was a Riot Girl label. It was this very specific thing. and And it's evolved over the years to encompass so much more than that that it's kind of hard to talk about. You know, they're like, if people ask... What kind of bands are on your label? You're like, oh, I don't know. Like, you know, an Americana band and a folk band and And a metal band. (laughs) And the one
4: thing you don't want to say is all kinds, because that's the answer. When you ask somebody, what kind of music do you listen to? If they say, I like all kinds of music, what that means is they're not really a music
0: fan. They don't like music. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Yeah, totally.
0: Yep. That is true. I would prefer if someone would just say, listen, I listen to country. I'd prefer that. I'd be like, good. I know who you are. That's awesome. But you yeah. say I listen to everything. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, even though like I, I you know I just got done saying that I don't like, you know, assigning, you know, genres to the the kind of bands that we sign or, or you know, the kind of label that I think Dirtnap is. I mean, it does say right on our label punk rock, so when people are <laughs> right on our logo, so you know, when when people ask what kind of music we put out, I usually just say punk, even though I think that, you know, in 2015 that's a pretty broad, you know, inclusive, you know, umbrella term for all kinds of you know, underground DIY rock and roll.
0: Well, I would agree. But I think, you know, can we drill down as a round table here and try to actually talk about what punk is? Because for me, when I listen to music like White Wires that we just listened to, that is a very different thing from listening to a band that, for example, has five guys in it who all went to Berklee School of Music and trained as jazz guys. Do you know what I mean? I feel like Mm -hmm. it's very different from that. And so I feel like punk has like, a, I don't want to say simplicity in terms of, you know, like they can't play hard stuff. That's not the point. It's more like it has a, well, simplicity in a good way, you know, like a very straightforward character.
2: Oh, no, I, I totally agree. I'm, I'm all about the simplicity. Uh, simplicity is really one of the things I look for in like good, good rock and roll bands. And also in the case of something like The White Wires, you know, I don't know if, if they would necessarily fall under... You know a very narrow definition of punk but you know i kind of think of them more as just they're kind of along the continuum of rock and roll you know i think listening to especially that first record there it's kind of actually i think takes elements from sort of all eras of rock from like 50s rock and roll to like 60s 60s garage to 70s punk to a little bit of 80s new wave to some kind of you know 90s you know budget rock thing and ties it into some, you know, kind of ties it all together into something that, you know, to me sounds really timeless and sounds like it could, could have come out of almost any era, but also mm-hmm. still seems modern in a way, too.
0: Yeah. Anybody else have any comments?
4: I can get so particular. You know, usually I say the music that I listen to and the music I put out uh, when I was putting out music it was punk. But, you know, if you hearken back to the early days of punk, to the late 70s, I sort of feel like the White Wires are probably more influenced by the jam. Than the Sex Pistols. You know? Oh, yeah,
2: undoubtedly.
0: Right. And Ooh. that's an important distinction, I mean, for people who care. <laughs> <laughs>
4: right, exactly. It's like you can get really into the weeds with it.
2: Yeah. Know. And, you know, in turn, the jam were probably more influenced, I think, than a lot of the 70s punk bands. By, by They were kind of more explicitly influenced by stuff that came before them, you know, especially, you know, obviously 60s stuff. Right.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think about, I just was having this thought at 4.45 in the morning that the only rock record that my parents had in the house when I was growing up was Sgt. Pepper's. And I think that makes, like, my musical taste completely clear. Like, (laughs) now everything makes sense, you know? Because I've always been a a Beatles, like, more Beatles than Stones, Mm -hmm. always. But I prefer, like, Robin Hitchcock. You know, it's like, if you play wacky guitar and you have crazy lyrics, like, I'm all over that. Mm-hmm. It's just a funny connection.
4: I think that what we listen to as kids, I mean, I, th- I guess we're really getting in the weeds and also, um, <laughs> but it might not be true in every case, but like my favorite records were Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles' White Album. And I feel like, you know, between Elliott Smith and Bikini Kill, the, it, that, those were the records that informed what I liked and what I put out on Kill Rock Stars.
0: You mm-hmm. know? Absolutely. All right, Theo, it's your turn. So what did you bring for us to listen to and why?
3: I brought a song from uh, a single that came out a few years ago by a band called La Luz. The song is Call Me in the Day, and it's a, a track that I brought in because in my role as a gatekeeper, well, a lot of it was letting only the good things in, some of it was reaching out to other people whose uh, opinion I respected, who were involved in music in other communities, uh, one of those being Seattle. I have a friend, Bobby McHugh, up there. He's a film producer, and he made a video for this band. He reached out to me and said, Hey, you should really check these people out. These, these women are amazing. Perhaps you can get them a show in Portland. And I hear that kind of thing all the time. But from someone like Bobby, I, I really paid attention and this track just was a, was a home run. And I, I got them down here as soon as I could. Since then, they've, they've, they've done pretty well. They have a couple of records out on Suicide Squeeze. Uh, this one is out on Water Wings Records, which I think is a subsidiary of Mississippi. It's a, a really moving, slow, dark, sexy surf song. Cool. From Seattle.
0: Let's hear it. Yeah we Song is really great.
3: Yeah, it was gorgeous, and the band is incredible. Uh, I've been able to watch them come up from just a couple of years ago being an incredible band to being just incredible performers. They have the stage show set. It really they take elements of '60s kind of R and B performance and play it out. They crowd surf. They get the audience to dance and they they're just incredible, they're just incredible, and in the series that I was working in at the time, it was a, a free low budget series. I didn't have a whole lot of money to bring artists from other cities out, so what I had to do was keep an eye on people who are coming up and grab them while I could when I could talk them into a little bit more than gas money to come down and play for a, a packed room.
2: right I really love that band. Their new record's really great. I listen. I've been listening to it all the time since it came out a couple weeks ago.
3: Weirdo Shrine, yeah. It's uh, produced by Ty Segal. I just picked it up and I, I haven't even spun it yet. I've been uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been meaning to set it now, but I do have it on Spotify too.
2: Well yeah. Lose is actually another one of those bands. When I when I play them in the shop, when there's people in the store, like somebody invariably is like, "Oh, what is this?" and then winds up buying it. So we we actually sell a fair amount of those records.
4: I thought that song was great. I noticed listening to it, I'd never heard it before. I noticed listening to it, there's a couple times that I felt like there were like drum mistakes that they left in. Like, mm-hmm. and to me, that's super punk when you just have an inspired performance and you just leave it how it is. You don't doctor it with, with digital you know fixes later or play it a hundred times to try to get it perfect. It, I really liked that.
0: I really noticed the different instruments doing their own thing. Each instrument is doing its own thing completely, and yet they are working together so well. And then the vocals, the beautiful harmonies, like it's a very masterful soup. You know, they've really put together something that sort of even sounds like maybe disparate parts, but that come together in a really amazing new way. I feel like that is the hallmark of a good band. I mean, I think all of us as gatekeepers, what we really are looking for is someone to just wow us, is just something that sounds like, holy kermole. that was incredible. Right. Like that was the same because music is pretty much, you know, it's the same notes. It's the same instruments <laughs> largely. But when you can put it together in a new way, it makes all the difference.
3: Oh, I know. And that is just that song is such a display of their mastery in, in writing and performing and in allowing those mistakes to bleed through in ways that make it sonically interesting and and different than a lot of what you're going to hear from uh, someone who really wants to get it just right. You know, sometimes just a little bit off is just what you need.
0: Well, and also, especially because it hints at what a good live band they probably are. You know, because when you hear somebody, I remember the most disappointing show I ever saw in my entire life was Radiohead at Radio City Music Hall. And I paid like $100 for those tickets, and I was so excited. It was the OK Computer Tour. Oh, yeah. And they got on stage and they literally played the entire album note for note. And I was just, I wanted to cry. Because I was like, I could have stayed home. There was no life to it. There was no excitement. There was no, they just were like, you know, it was like listening to a record. It was so annoying. (laughs) (sighs) So, yeah. We're gonna pause the conversation for a moment for a quick station break. This is The Future of What. Stay with us.
6: Can I have a taste of your ice?
0: We're back on The Future of What. I'm Portia Sabin. We're talking gatekeepers. And guys, I want to talk about a song I love. This is Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, and their song, Bag of Hammers.
7: I am all in a ball in your front. I have sold everything, still I have have got some manners, and there's a hole in your head, spilled your thoughts on the floor, we wanted you bad, you wanted it more, the trick is, you do not get on that interstate bus, the catch stay and see what becomes
0: That was Bag of Hammers by Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down. And Slim, I'm going to let you talk about this song. I'm going to let you intro it and lead up to how we came, how I came to be listening to this song in the first place.
4: Well, I was managing, I was still running Kill Rock Stars back then, but I was also being a manager for artists. And I was manager for an artist, a Seattle artist named Laura Veers. And so I was fielding Laura's mail. And this young woman named Tao Nguyen from Virginia, Wrote and said, I really love your music. I love your albums. Here's my album. And if you ever play in Virginia, maybe you could let me open for you. But I was really floored by her record. And the next time I was in Washington, D.C., I had lunch with her. And so then I became her manager. And then a little while after that, I stopped managing artists. And by that time, you were familiar with Tao.
0: And also, I had taken over the label. Yeah, you took over the label. And basically what happened was I was pitching this band. I was pitching Tao and her and the song to other labels. And much like the Elliott Smith thing, I couldn't get anyone interested. And I also couldn't get that song out of my head. And I finally was like, wait a second. I could put this (laughs) It was sort of a similar story, I guess, Slim. I just thought that we were not big enough because I thought she was so amazing. And I thought, oh, you know, that seems like doing her a disservice to just put it out on my label. But then I came around to the idea that actually it was better to get this music out there and have people be able to love her and become fans. So I'm glad I did. But that song, I mean, it's funny that I said the thing about Sergeant Pepper because now I'm listening to every song and I was like, oh, so Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> like, it's very, you know, it's just like so orchestral and there's so much upbeat joy and her lyrics are so fantastic. I really, you know, I really feel like She's one of those classic songwriters who writes about very, very sad subjects in such an upbeat way that you'd never know unless you were really paying attention, you know, what she was really talking about.
4: Right, the dissonance between the the upbeat music and the really depressing lyrics is pretty genius, I think.
0: I love that pretty much, always. (laughs) Does anybody else have anything to say about that song? (laughs)
3: What what, what can you say? It's an incredible song that really, Stands on its own. And I love that it has kind of elements of hip hop and and folk, and it plays these these different uh, these del- different elements off of each other in, in a way that that, as you said, yeah, is uplifting and fun and interesting. And it just it stands out from from the pack as as a brilliant piece of work. And how, just what what a what a voice. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, very special voice, too.
4: when she I don't know if she still does this, but when she used to play it with with the band, um she would start out beatboxing before mm-hmm. she would start singing, you know, yeah, which was really neat,
0: ok, guys. So I have one more question. I think there's been a lot in this roundtable for musicians to learn. A lot of the stuff we've said has been pretty helpful if people actually listen to it <laughs> <laughs> But let's go around and just let me know if there's anything that you would advise a musician who's sending their demo to a gatekeeper. Theo?
3: Do your research.
0: Excellent. Slim? If you invite a label
4: owner or an a r guy to your show and the person comes in and watches have to set, stays at the back of the room, watches have to set and leaves, don't then conclude that the person is a jerk and that they didn't pay attention and like write a bunch of stuff on Facebook about how they suck. (laughs) Because actually the life of an A&R person, maybe they had to see four shows that night. Maybe their knees are tired. They may still have actually really loved your set. So wait and see instead of just jumping to a conclusion about that.
0: And Ken?
2: Well, I mean, I would definitely repeat the do your research part. Like do your homework about where you're sending things. And, you know, I'd also like add to that, you know, definitely be proactive about sending out your band's music. But... You know, also, you know, bear in mind that for a lot of record labels, that's not really how they find bands. You know, personally, you know, nine out of 10 bands, we, you know, sign up to to Dirt Nap, our bands that I've actually I actually reach out to them rather than the other way around. So even though we occasionally like very occasionally do start to work with a band just out of a random thing that they sent us, that's pretty much the exception more than it is the
5: rule.
0: That's all good advice. Thanks, guys. Well, we're out of time, you guys. Thank you so much for our very first Gatekeepers Roundtable. We had Ken Shapai Code from Dirtnap Records. We had Slim Moon, formerly of Kill Stars, And we had Theo Craig, the freelance club promoter. Thanks, guys, so much for joining me.
2: Thanks, Parsha. Thank you.
0: And that's our show. The songs we played today were used by permission from the artists. If you have a question you want answered on the show, please email us at thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived at KillRockstars.com slash the future of what, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Our program was engineered by Reed Harvey and is produced by John Sepulvado and Will Watts. Thanks to Digital One Studios in Portland. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. No.
6: Mind your own business.